Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. From the Magen David to the Menorah, from the Hatikva to the Hora, did we choose the Jewish symbols or did they choose us? Batya Bricker is a book publisher, book festival coordinator, and general jack-of-all-trades in the book business. She's also a lecturer at the Jewish Academy of Learning, and she'll be running a course, Signs, Symbols, and Songs of Israel. Batya, welcome, and thank you so much for being in the studio. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your time. I'm so appreciative. You know, there's so many times that I do want to speak to you, and I know (laughs) that I have to book you months and months in advance. So welcome to the studio. Well, thank you. I wasn't going to miss this one. Thank you. Um, so you're running a course as part of the um, Jewish, let me just get that exactly right, the Jewish Academy of Learning. Yes. And your focus is on Jewish symbolism. How did you come to that, Batya? Well, you know, this year is a very important year for Jerusalem. It's the the um, celebration of the 50th year of the reunification of Jerusalem. And so the Academy put together a program celebrating that, all different aspects of Jerusalem. And my task was to look at freedom songs around Jerusalem um, and Jewish freedom songs. Are they different? Are they the same? Um, what other freedom, freedom songs are out there? How does a freedom song become an anthem? So I started looking into this and I had a two-hour slot. The content was so fascinating that I have since gone on to create an entire course just on that. And we've obviously extended it beyond songs, but it was worthy of an entire eight-hour course. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. Let's start real We'll turn to songs, but what is the oldest Jewish symbol? Well, that's what I found really fascinating. This is... Um, history that I did not know and I often find myself I'm doing research for a for a course and sort of two hours later <laughs> I've, I've completely segued into a different space completely but it, it, it kind of gives you a full rounded view which is amazing so what I start looking at is the Magain David because that's what we consider a Jewish symbol and it's yes. what your previous speaker was speaking about as well we kind of Assume that it was always a Jewish symbol and that it's solely independently a Jewish symbol. And it is so not. The, the history of the Magain David, the Magain David is, is ubiquitous. It is all over the place. There are all kinds of groups and philosophies who take it on as their own from the Freemasons to, um, the Latter-day Saints to the Hindus to the Kabbalists. So, the Magain David is certainly not a Jewish symbol. A Jewish symbol, you could say, would be the menorah, okay. the menorah from the temple. You know, that's the nine-branch um, candelabra, and possibly the Lion of Judah. Those okay. are possibly the the oldest ones. Okay. But it was the Magain David that Herzl drew on his sketch when he was planning, you know, sort of thinking about a Zionist flag, and it was used in 1897 at the um, Zionist Congress, and because of that. It kind of, again, took a life of its own and became ours. Um, we, we very, you know, even people who are not affiliated to anything Jewish would certainly connect to the Magain David as a symbol. I, I, I'm sure I've told the story on air again, but I love it so much I'm going to tell it again. When I was living in Holland many years yes. ago and I was in Amsterdam and I was in a, tra- a tram actually and I saw on the walls graffiti, Magain David with F in it. And I didn't understand exactly what it was. And then someone explained that the Dutch, the Amsterdam team is Ajax. And because Amsterdam used to be a Jewish 
city or associated with Jews, Ajax, their soccer players, became associated with this Magandovid, and the F is the F side, you know, kind of the soccer F side oh, of I Ajax. See. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's hardly um reflective of what we think it is. It you know, symbols we give meaning to symbols. Symbols are supposed to be your shortcut yes. to understanding a philosophy, a view, an experience, a, a world's view. But they often aren't, and often it's quite confusing. Um, just another example of that, which I find fascinating, is that in southern Germany, the Magendavid is a symbol that tavern owners use if they provide beer on tap. It's called the beer star. Yeah. And so if you saw a Magendavid in the southern tip of Germany... That's actually what they would be saying. And, Come and, and have some really fresh, <laughs> fabulous, amazing beer. Yeah, yes. Um, the other symbol that, that I'm seeing more and more of, it's almost like taking up the place of Magandavit, is the Hamsa. When I was yes. last in Israel, people are more and more wearing Hamsas around their necks. And well, that's possibly um, connected to the difficulty with Zionism and the issues with Zionism and kind of, you know, when you wear a Magain David now, it certainly reflects both an affiliation to the Jewish people, but also to Israel. And I think that because of the complexities of that affiliation, the Hamza perhaps, and perhaps in time it will, it will become, (laughs) you know, the unofficial national Symbol, and yet um, its its history is not particularly Jewish. No, either is it? No, no, <laughs> and I, I think that's also you know the the line of Judah, for example, is not something when I look at it, I think, oh, you know, that's mm. that's, and yet that is much more about the Jewish people and the Jewish story, and the menorah. Before we go, the menorah songs. as well. The menorah as well is you know comes from the Tanakh, um, the the. Tribes of Israel in Bamidbar in in is it Numbers? What what is Bamidbar in English? Um, it's described that each tribe had their own symbol, and right. so there were different colours for each tribe, and there were different symbols for each tribe, and they had deep meaning. Um, so a lot of that has been lost, but the menorah has remained and the line because and the line. Um, so, so those have continued, but they certainly don't have the same presence in 21st century Jewish experience. You know, it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely fascinating. And I was very lucky to hear you talk on Naomi Shemer and her Jerusalem of Gold yes. song, which you say is almost an unofficial anthem. It of is. Israel. Um, you know, she wrote it during the time, sort of 50 years back. And what is amazing is that it has endured. What I look at in the course and what we discuss is how that came to be. Why would a song, which was a freedom song, and there were many written at that time, but why would that one endure? And we look at the reasons why, who sang it, when they sang it, how how the song came to be written. And because of that, it it has endured 50 years. Do you, uh, yeah, going back to freedom songs, now you said you looked at other freedom songs, and we we South African, and we come, obviously, from... A strong protest history. Yes. Did you look at South African freedom songs and? Oh yes. Tell me. So, so I, I looked at um, freedom songs both with the American Civil Rights Movement. So that's we shall overcome. You know Martin Luther King. Yes. And what what is amazing about a song like that? I suppose because it's in English, perhaps that might be the reason. But you just hear that 
we shall overcome. And you get swept up in the emotion. Again, it's that shortcut. It's a shortcut to a feeling, to a view, to a vision, to a dream. And um, Kosi Sikileli Africa is, is similar in that it that's that's a song that was originally a freedom song and became a national anthem for many African countries. In fact, some later changed theirs when they got independence, but it still remains a national anthem for a number of countries. So it's kind of bigger than just one nationalist geographic space. Um, and I, I think what I did find a theme in freedom songs versus an in National anthems that have their roots in a freedom song are very different from national anthems that don't. And if you think, for example, um, La Marseillaise is yes. a call for arms. Right. Okay, so it's a it's a military march. It's quite gory, mm-hmm. actually, um, as opposed to Nkosi Sikileli Africa, which is God bless Africa. And often there's God or some kind of divine mentioned, but there's certainly the vision, the dream, um, something bigger, the bigger picture is encompassed in those, in those words. And you can see Hatikva is is less so, but Yerushalayim Shel Zahav certainly captured a vision and a zeitgeist of that time. And I think that's partly why it still stirs the emotions. We talk about Hatikva. You spoke actually that time, too, too before we leave um, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. The two things you spoke about it, in a way you speak about it as being the unofficial anthem of Israel, and I'd like to explore that. Well, I think that songs and symbols, for that matter, take on a life of their own. You can try, if you want, to push your agenda and to get people to adopt a certain thing. But once it's out there, it has a life of its own. And the the perfect example is Hatikva, but Yerushalayim Shel Zahav is similar because someone like Herzl, who was the father of Zionism. So you would think that maybe Hatikva would be something that he would like. He was deeply opposed to to, to Hatikva for a number of reasons. One of them was because of the author. The author he felt was a never do well, who who was a vagabond and a, a you know and a good for nothing. And he felt that that wasn't appropriate um, then to as a person to write the anthem. I didn't know that at all. It was Naftali Hertz Ember who was a, a poet, um, very talented poet and he wrote a nine stanza poem called Tikvatenu and from that um, the first two stanzas comes the words of Hatikva but with a little change because there is a gender there and the people who adopted it changed it and they eked out reference to David and God in Hatikva Wow. So because of that, um, the song Hatikva is, is problematic for others because how can you talk about a Jewish experience, a Jewish history, a Jewish country without God is a view of, of many. And how can you not make that reference? And so that is where, where people are opposed singing the national anthem or singing a Hatikva. That's where it comes from. You can't have a Jewish experience without mentioning God. Um, there were people who, cultural Zionists, again, who felt that Imber's poetic style was desultory and depressing, and they didn't want that. Um, you had secular Zionists who, who felt that it was too messianic in its nature. Mm. So 
It was a very Jewish experience adopting <laughs> I took the many views. So, so what was the over, overarching decision to take that on? Well, and who made it? Well, that's I think that's what I found most fascinating is that the flag was adopted in 1948. It had, you know, the blue and white flag that we know today, the star with the two stripes. It was taken on for the Zionist movement, and then it became the flag of Israel as soon as Israel was declared a state. It took another 20 years or so for Hatikva to be ratified as the national anthem in the Knesset. And the reason is because of all this backwards and forwards, and many people opposed it. But in the end, Hatikva got a life of its own. So people were singing it anyway. They were singing it anyway. Exactly. They were singing it anyway. It resonated with people. So it became the national anthem, whether Herzl liked it or not. Hmm. And it's the same is true for for symbols, and the same is true for Yerushalayim shells. I have the same thing. You know, it it's it goes beyond the people, beyond the vision. What also struck me when I had only 15 minutes of your lecture, I can imagine what, you know, how enriched I would be in doing an entire course of yours, Batya, was the, the controversy around Naomi Shema's song, Yerushalayim Shells I Have, that I had no idea. And now that when I hear the song, I, I'm not as, I'm a little bit more ambiguous than I was before. Is that something you touch on your course? Oh, a lot. And I oh. think that the idea, again, is what your, your previous speaker spoke about. We romanticize Jewish history and we kind of put it all in one monolithic um, story. But in fact, it's very textured. It's diverse. It's complicated. It's layered. And that's what makes it real. So even though we we assume things and we take them on as Jewish things, they have a very kind of checkered history and and um, come from many places. One of the examples we give in Hatikva is that the tune of Hatikva, you know, there's a lot of people thought that the tune came from Smetna's Maldu. You know, it's in the middle of that. But in fact, um, Smetna took the reference from a Romanian Jewish immigrant, um, Samuel Cohen, who actually brought that Moldavian melody to Israel to, to, you know, in the very early days of Israel. It was, uh, the tune was called the cart and oxen. I don't know what it is in Romanian, <laughs> but you can imagine it had that sort of bucolic feel. Um, and it is that tune that became the tune of Hatikva. There's, there's then again the counter debate because there's a view <laughs> that in fact both Samuel Cohen and Smetna took that tune from an old Sephardi tune um, where they used to sing the prayer for the for rain, Tfilat um, Hatal, or yeah, um, the the prayer for dew, and that. Um, tune is very similar and what we do in the course which is so amazing is you listen to each snippet of those and it's like listening to the same song it's that what um, Abraham Tzvi Eagleson calls the wandering melody just like the wandering Jew it's the wandering melody okay tell me if if anybody would like to join your course what are the details and then we'll look at some of the other courses that are also coming up um, yes. with the Jewish Academy of Learning okay so signs, symbols and songs is um, starting three Wednesday morning sessions on from the 30th of August. And um, it's worthwhile to look 
at um, theacademy.org.za, that's the website, or to telephone 010-140-2099. One of the courses that um, that's also on the brochure there is Worrell's 10 Jews. Um, and I, I'm talking to Leslie Cohen in one of the upcoming weeks who is um, the, the I don't know if she's the curator, but certainly associated with it. It's art museum. Yes. And it's also a topic I think many people don't know. You know, Worrell's 10 Jews. Yes. So how did he, how did he choose them? Why did he choose them? Why were they prominent 10 people in Worrell's time? So that course is four Tuesday mornings or evening sessions, and that starts on the 8th of August. There's also Torah in a nutshell. And um, the sages and the Maharal and the Mikalot. And one of the nice things that the uh, Jewish Academy of Learning does is they partner up with different schools and shuls and organizations. So basically it's very accessible to just about everybody. Is that true? Yes, it's kind of all over the place. We, we travel far and wide, which is really nice. Okay, so I'm just going to give those details one more time. Um, if you'd like to learn more, uh, either Batcher's course, which I would highly recommend, as, as indeed I would the others, please contact 010-140-2099 or email info at theacademy.org.za. Batcher, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I could have had another two hours. I would have loved you. Please come back. <laughs> I will do. I'll, I'll start I'll negotiating <laughs> the time in the future. Um, that was Batcher Bricker, who is running a course on signs, symbols, and songs for the Jewish Academy of learning.